across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is all happening this morning, ladies and gentlemen, as we gather our thoughts ahead of another Prime Minister's questions later on today. Boris Johnson is presiding over what's beginning to look like a winning formula of vaccination and an ever-increasing sense that schools are going to reopen, holidays are going to be booked and the economy is actually going to be opened up. I don't know quite why I feel this sense of optimism, but I just know that I do. And I just think that more and more people are now beginning to see it as well. We passed the 10 million jabs mark yesterday and I feel like there is an increasing level uh, of good feelings out there optimism indeed daily coronavirus infections are down by 60% according to government figures and it's time to pressure the powers that be more in terms of lifting those lockdown restrictions we'll be talking to Matt Vickers Tory MP for Stockton South about his efforts to persuade Boris Johnson to make things easier for businesses and for people and we'll get his thoughts on the sad demise yesterday afternoon of Captain Tom Moore who is all over the front pages this morning also we'll We'll be asking him uh, about a terrible video that he put out yesterday uh, in which um, it was uh, Chris Whitty being abused by some uh, idiotic uh, sort of uh, youth who seemed to think it was a great idea uh, to go around calling him a liar, innit? You're a liar. You're a liar. That's what he said. Absolutely unbelievable. We'll be playing that to you later on as well. Also, we might ask him about a hilarious story in The Guardian this morning in which Labour revealed their strategy uh, for winning back the Red Wall in the north of England. And guess what? They haven't got any strategy. They don't know what to do. 0344 499 Coming up later on, Neil Oliver joins us with his take on the state we are in and an appreciation of Captain Tom's generation. Plus, Charlotte Ivers will be back uh, as well to take a closer look at PMQs with Boris and Sukir. 0344 499 As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. Yesterday, uh, we heard some heartbreaking stories of people trying their level best to see their elderly relatives in care homes. My own mother has started asking if anyone is coming to see her for her 97th birthday over in the US of A. I feel like I really want to go, uh, but it feels like I'm not going to be able to go there uh, in time for the end of March. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, yesterday afternoon, I got um, a note from Matt Vickers saying, please share this. This is appalling. I really can't believe this footage. Chris Whitty, a man that we may not always agree with, a man that even uh, occasionally I have, um, have questioned in terms of some of the information that he's given out. But what he does not deserve and what nobody deserves who is in the public eye uh, is to be uh, harangued, harassed and abused when out in public. Have a listen to this. He's um, a big man. You're a liar. You're a liar. My name is a liar. He's a liar. You're a liar. You lie about the COVID-19 cases, man. Come on, man, stop lying. I mean, Chris Whitty puts up uh, an incredible uh, vision of of, of kind of uh, tolerance. I mean, I think it was me. I'd have given the kid a slap which no doubt would have ended up in uh, in a bad place. But let's talk to Matt Vickers right now uh, and find out what was going on. Matt, very good morning to you. 
Good morning, Mike. Now, as I said, there's plenty of people out there, um, and I was pleased to see on my Twitter feed after I retweeted that video uh, that you sent me, um, that people were saying, you know, we don't necessarily agree with everything that Chris Whitty says. We're not even that sure we like him very much, but he does not deserve uh, to be harangued and harassed in public, as indeed uh, do you guys not deserve to be harangued and harassed in public. And it's a terrible sort of state we are in in this country when people think that's all right. I think you're entirely right. I mean, I mean, you know, all of these various measures that have come in, the country's been through the ringer with, uh, you know, complying and sacrificing, um, and people aren't very happy about it. But do you know what? This guy, he's not a politician. He's a guy who's, who spent his lifetime studying this stuff. We are benefiting enormously from his objective information, the knowledge and experience he's bringing to the table. He's on the front line in the NHS. Um, he deserves our utmost respect. And actually, the fact that this guy's getting trapped like this in our country is just disgusting, actually. Mm. You know, that's how our community looks to the people who led us through this crisis. Jesus. I mean, rather ironically as well, this kid who clearly could do with a clip round the ear, as far as I'm concerned, um, is also wearing a mask. So he can't be entirely... Uh, disunited with the views of Chris Whitty, because Chris Whitty, of course, is standing there uh, taking all this without saying anything. But this bloke who's giving him a hard time has also got a mask on. I think there's a double-edged... There's, there's, two, there's two reasons people might think he does what he does. I think there's the assumption that he doesn't believe in coronavirus and thinks it's all a bit of a myth, which we, we, we see in my mailbox. Um, you know, thousands of deaths, but people think it's a myth and it's, it's not real and it's all, you know, we shouldn't go and get vaccinated. No, all this, you know, uh, Piers Corbyn-type malarkey... Um, is one line, and the other is just the actual lack of respect for, for individuals who are on the front line. We've seen these rising uh, assaults on emergency service works and all that sort of thing, this general disrespect from people who just think they can go around abusing people, and I think it's probably, it could be a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, you said at the time yesterday that you'd like to see this guy sort of rounded up and apprehended. I mean, I don't think he deserves to be put in jail or anything like that, which is what some people were saying, but I think he needs to be given a bit of a stern talking to, doesn't he? I'm hopeful that his parents might have seen that video and might, uh, might give him the sort of clip around the ear that I might have got at home. Uh, but I think reality uh, is that he needs to look at it, acknowledge what he's done and, and, and see it and actually have an understanding of what people are going through in this pandemic. I get contacted by people who are losing family members. You've got all this sort of stuff going on. Mm. And then we've got twerps like that behaving like that. It's just, it's just not on. No, um, and actually, when he puts it in the context, takes a look at the wider world and sees what's going on around him, perhaps a growth bit and... and you know, show a bit more maturity. Absolutely right. Well, maturity is a good thing in all uh, areas, really, isn't it? And unfortunately, there's quite a few people who are rather immature, uh, not only in uh, the world of, uh, of walking around on the street, but also in the world of politics as well. But let's talk a little bit about uh, the situation, Matt, that we that we have. You've spoken out before about the likelihood of, of releasing um, the lockdown a little bit, giving people the opportunity to go back to work, to be able to reopen businesses that have been closed for a long time. People have been suffering a lot over the course of this kind of winter period. But I feel as though there's a kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, if you like, because of the vaccination rate that we that we, we've got going past 10 million, which is amazing, really. Uh, and also the fact that I'm hearing more and more sort of positivity coming out of Downing Street. And also they're beginning to talk about the collateral damage that's being caused to teenagers, to children not going to school, you know, and all of that. I think the longer we're in this lockdown, the more we've got to think about those vulnerable youngsters and actually... It's the youngsters who have the toughest time who are going to get the most out of going to school that we need to start looking after. We need to get them back in those classrooms as soon as possible. We've also got to look at all these businesses across the country, people who've done the right thing, turned their hand to making a success of something, and we're locking them down. We're mm. stopping them doing trade. And it's all, it is a balance of lives and livelihoods. I am absolutely thrilled by the success of the vaccination programme. 
I think, I mean, do you remember at the beginning when uh, when these people were telling us, oh, we need to be part of this EU vaccination program? Oh, my God. Got along. And do you know what? Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson did the ballsy thing. They started placing orders for vaccines that might never have come off. Yeah. We might have been sat here with egg on our face going, oh, the pennies, we've wasted a bit of cash. Actually, no, we went for it. We rolled our sleeves up, took some risks, and now it's paying off. Well, can you imagine? In my region can you imagine, Matt? being vaccinated than in all of France. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if it was the other way around and somehow we had dragged our feet uh, and the European Union had been much better than us? I mean, you'd never have heard the end of it from the likes of Lord of Oh, it would have gone on and, and on and collection on, yeah. of clowns who keep banging on about how we'd be better off in the EU who want to rejoin it, you know. I mean, it's an absolute disaster zone. I think I think even if you look back, what we, we've been at this a little while now. We've been at a year, um, and actually, in context, if someone had said to us, "We're going to have a vaccine created, we're going to pull this thing out of somewhere, and we're going to be able to go around jumping, it's all going to be fixed at a, at a speed of light." I mean, we didn't even understand what this thing was really a year ago. Uh, now we've got millions of these things rolling out around the country. In my part of the world, the hospital are jabbing people, the GPs are jabbing people, the local pharmacy has now set up as a vaccination hub. And he's jabbing people. It's fantastic stuff. And even better for my part of the world, Mike, if you're not already aware, uh, we've got Novavax, the new vaccine that's thought oh, yeah. to be 89% effective. It's going to be brewed in Stockton uh, and it's going to be rolling out, providing jobs in my part of the world, creating this vaccine. And we can't wait. Yes, I mean, that is quite an extraordinary thing. But I think now is the good time as well for guys like yourself and other backbenchers in the Tory party to keep pressurising the government to make sure that they are paying attention to all of that. And it's all very well to wave uh, their own flag and to talk about how great we are. But let's get the economy back working. Let's get the uh, the schools open. Let's get the pubs open. Let's get the restaurants open. Let's get people travelling, you know, because quite frankly, you know, we're going to have probably a third of the of the country vaccinated come the end of february yeah and it's the most it's the most uh, vulnerable it's the people to lose their lives as a result we're doing it in a in a you know life-saving uh, approach so that the most vulnerable the people who are most at risk from this thing are getting the jabs first so hopefully that means we can start opening more doors uh, returning life to normal a little bit start the economy pumping save some more of those jobs get those vulnerable youngsters into school uh, and, and stop locking them up and, yeah. and missing out on education now we spoke to lee anderson earlier on this week um, and he was very solid on the fact that the labor party in particular the front bench of the labor party who have been claiming all sorts of things including television licenses you know first class travel for angela Rain you know, uh, hand gel for Lisa Nandy, all of that. Uh, he was very sure that they were very much out of touch with the Red Wall voters, the people in the north of England that you represent, Matt. Uh, and I'm looking at The Guardian this morning. I don't know if you've seen it, but it makes for very, very amusing reading. Uh, Labour's strategy to win back the Red Wall. It turns out they haven't got any. I read this. I think it's, I mean, it talks about using the flag and using veterans. Um, I, I just think they're completely misaligned. Yeah. I also don't think the British public are stupid. Uh, their value set is not aligned with people from my part of the world. You know, when these people have their agendas and their priorities, they're not the agendas and priorities of people from my part of the world. No. Um, I mean, you talk about using veterans. We had legislation going forward to protect veterans from vexatious legal cases. They opposed it. They weren't on message. We had Lisa Nandy. This isn't some backbencher. This is the shadow of foreign secretary talking about replacing our great armed forces mm. with a gender balanced peace force. Right. Um, they, these people do not speak for people from Stockton and Teesside. You know, they're, they're 
Islington lovies that are on a different planet to my guys. Oh, they really are. But how about this for a paragraph, right? It talks about how confused Labour voters are, right? The party's head of research said that voters are confused about what we stand for, what our purpose is, and who we represent. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, I think, about as, I think as damning, that's about as damning uh, 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 an invective as any. I think the voters are confused, but I think, I think they're confused, actually. I don't think they know what they stand for. They're all over the shop. Uh, great people like Lee Anderson, uh, people like my granny, who previously voted Labour, will never vote for this loss. They are not the Labour Party of yesteryear. They, they do not represent anything like the North East in any way, shape or form. Uh, their value set's completely misaligned. Mm. And until they get, till they, 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 they start appreciating this country, what it stands for, and what people in my part of the world stand for, I don't see that they'll be getting elected any time soon. No, I think you're absolutely right. And as far as Prime Minister's questions goes, I mean, assuming that, uh, that he hasn't had to self-isolate for the fourth time, I presume Sir Keir Starmer will be in the chamber today, uh, no doubt advising once again Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, what he would have done and when he would have done it. It's usually what he would have done two weeks ago mm. uh, with, with, you know, Captain Hindsight we talked about, didn't we? I think I think they were spot on in that That's description. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality is he makes all these opinions on what should and shouldn't be done, mm. but then never actually follows them through and never turns up with his guys to vote through any I mean, of this stuff. 10 p.m. curfew is against it, but fails to turn up and vote against it. It's, it's all over the shop. I know. Well, even last week, I enjoyed uh, uh, Boris Johnson sort of shredding him and asking him whether he would condemn uh, the unions mm. and whether he would actually say honestly, whether he thought that going back to school was safe and whether schools were safe for students to go to. And he couldn't even bring himself to give a, an answer on that. I mean, all you got to do with Keir Starmer is ask him a straight question and he becomes completely and utterly befuddled. I, think, I mean, we had the, the issue at the beginning with skills when we were talking about the clubs in the first place, didn't we, where he, he couldn't quite pick a side. Uh, he didn't know whether schools should be shut and whether he's with the union. It's, it's gone on and on and on. I think you're right. Ask him a straight answer and you get anything, a straight question, you get anything but a straight answer. Mm. No, exactly right. And as far as um, the rest of this um, rollout continuing uh, goes on, um, Matt, when are you likely to be able to have a kind of a conversation with the Prime Minister uh, and, and give him a little nudge from us at Talk Radio yeah. to say, can you please, can you please give us a bit more of a roadmap as to what we're going to do? I know we're expecting that, I think, in March, but I think we could maybe at least have an idea a little bit sooner, before the end of February. I think probably, so I think probably rather than a timetable, I think we need to know where the lines in the sand are. I.e. If, if we get the infection rate down to X, what does that mean? Which mm. doors can we open and who can start going where? Um, but I think those conversations are happening every day because uh, there's people like me and every gang of us like me who are going in having that debate. We want the doors open, we want the economy moving, we want our kids back in skill. Yeah, absolutely right. Matt, thank you very much indeed. Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South, part uh, of that red wall uh, that fell to the Tory party in the last election, uh, which gave Boris Johnson and the Conservatives an 80-seat majority. Uh, and there's a very good reason for that. And it's in The Guardian this morning. They basically have admitted, the Labour Party, that they don't know what they're doing and they don't know where to go. And they think they've got some strategy, but they don't know what it is. How about this? I'm going to repeat this, right? The party's head of research said voters were confused about what we stand for, what our purpose is, and who we represent. Well, you might as well just sh shut up shop, mind you. The Labour Party is dead and buried, like the proverbial dodo. It has disappeared up its own backside. This is Talk Radio. 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Let's just remind ourselves of what uh, Keir Starmer wants to do uh, in order to try and make the Labour Party more electable. Among the top recommendations that the Labour Party has made is the use of the flag veterans, dressing smartly at the war memorial, etc., give voters a sense of authentic values alignment. This is why the Labour Party's finished, right? Because they can't actually speak in commonsensical terms. What they can't do is relate to ordinary working-class people of this country. And if they haven't got the working-class people of this country, all they've got is a collection of communists, you know, lefties, absolute and utter champagne socialists living in big houses in south-west London. And I'm afraid... That is never going to get you into government. And what they've also lost is the entire country of Scotland, which they used to own massively, 48 seats they used to produce out of that. They'll never get back into power without Scotland. And now they've lost the north of England as well. I'd love to hear more from you, uh, if you're a Labour Party member, as to how you think that uh, Boris Johnson will ever be beaten in a general election by Sir Keir Starmer. I just don't think it's going to happen. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's talk now, though, uh, to Professor Hugh Pennington, Emeritus Professor of Bacteriology at Aberdeen University. Uh, The news this morning on the front page of the Times, the Oxford jab does reduce the spread of coronavirus, which I think is a great piece of news for those of us who would like to see not only more people uh, getting the vaccination, but also more people um, actually being able to get back to work, to get back to running their businesses, getting back uh, children into school, and all of that. Professor Hugh, a very good morning to you. Hi there. This is a quite important piece of information, isn't it? Because up until now, we've been told that the, the, the vaccine's great, but unfortunately, it doesn't stop you from getting the virus. It doesn't stop you from spreading the virus, albeit uh, that it gives you uh, a pretty good way of not getting very sick with the virus. But this suggests that, uh, that, the, that the vaccine will now stop the spread of it. That's right. Really important news because, you know, all the experts are saying we don't know whether it will stop people being infected, not getting ill from the infection, but having it up your nose, in your throat and then blowing it out onto other people and infecting them. And of course, if they have no immunity, they may well die from the virus. Now, this news suggests that the vaccine does induce that kind of immunity that stops the virus settling in, in, in your throat. Where, and then your nose, you know, which, which is where the infection starts, uh, and then stopping you, obviously, um, um, you know, spreading it to other folk. I'm not at all surprised. I was a bit surprised when there was so much sort of, we don't know, because generally speaking, what you do when you make a, an immune response to a virus like this, you, you make several classes of antibodies, and also there are cells that are going to knock off cells that are infected with the virus. But one of the antibodies is called IgA, mm. and it's a local antibody. It, it, it's it's you know it's secreted. It's in your snot. Not to put too fine a point on it. Oh my it. goodness me! A bit early for that sort of talk, you. <laughs> yeah, and that stops the virus getting established. And if it did try and get established, it would be knocked off as soon as the cells produced mm. any new virus. And I was, you know, I'm, so I'm not surprised because I would have expected this vaccine to produce that kind of antibody, to produce that local immunity, and which is the key to stopping uh, people who've had the vaccine carrying the virus in an asymptomatic way, but still being able to infect others. So it's very good news. And as you say, it's another step in the direction of if we get enough people vaccinated, we can really stop the virus buzzing around. 
and we can do like some of your earlier interviewees have been suggesting and get back to normal life and be able to go to pubs and all that right. kind of thing. Well, this is it. I mean, 10 million people now, we passed that milestone yesterday. I'm surprised nobody's making a big deal of it, to be honest. I mean, the media made such a big deal of 100,000 people being dead. You'd think they would also make a big deal of 10 million people being vaccinated already. Uh, but it could be that by the end of February, and I'm told by, the, by May, the entire population might have been vaccinated. That's right. I mean, we don't have to vaccinate the entire population, but we have to in, in, vaccinate a significant majority of the population, really, to stop the virus in its tracks. That doesn't mean to say there won't be local outbreaks, but we'll be, they'll be much, much easier to control. They're not going to be a threat to the population at large. And of course, there's still the issue of other countries who haven't been doing anywhere near as well as we have in terms of getting their vaccination programs rolling. So the virus could come from there. But that's a, that's a much more manageable issue. You know, we've been through that before in the olden days with smallpox, where we got rid of it in this yeah. country long before it had got we got rid of it on the world stage. And we could cope with it whenever it was imported, which wasn't very often. Yeah. And is there any evidence, and I don't know whether you can answer this question really, but I mean, I was very frustrated last night watching the news on TV where every single television interviewer was asking the question, how worried should we be about these new variants? You know, surely the question should be, uh, if there are more and more new variants, does that inevitably weaken the strength of the virus in the sense that, you know, it's being spread more widely? Well, the evidence so far is that none of the variants are nastier than the original virus. And let's face it, the original virus is nasty enough. As you say, it's already killed 100,000 people. So it's bad enough. Mm. And the variants might be easier. It might get around a bit more easily. But the old virus got around pretty easily as well. We had enormous outbreaks. You know, just remember all the student outbreaks and and meat plants and and all those sort of things. There have been some enormous outbreaks with the old virus. Mm. The new variants are perhaps a little easier in getting around, but um, I don't think they change the picture at all. We know the virus mutates. We know that coronaviruses mutate really quite well. They swap their genes around. We have to keep an eye on that. The, the big worry would be if a variant appeared that was resistant to the vaccine. But the vaccine manufacturers assure us that if that happens, they would be ready to make a new vaccine, which would cope with the new, yes. any new variant. Oh yeah, I mean, we've we've already managed to put to bed the sort of scare story that was going around a couple of days ago that the new vaccines aren't capable of dealing with a different variant, which is clearly uh, there is no evidence to support that at all. What I am also uh, rather encouraged by, Professor, is that I'm looking at the figures in the Telegraph this morning. Uh, the seven-day average of coronavirus cases appears to be down by sixty percent, which you must be encouraged by. Oh, absolutely, everything is going in the right direction, and. Uh, Clearly, you know, it'd be nice if it was going down even faster. But yeah. it is going down at a well, very Well, 60% rate. is pretty good. It's it's pretty good. And and we are, I think, at the end of getting the, you know, well, we're at the beginning of the end of getting to grips with this virus in a real way and really getting the figures down in the UK. And, of course, the further down the figures are, the easier it is to cope with what's left. Mm. Um, and and so on, you know that, that that that's the bonus of having relatively low figures. We can focus on the outbreaks because this virus specialises in causing outbreaks, putting a ring around the outbreaks, and um, you know stopping the, the virus getting out of the outbreaks into the, the wider population mm. and that kind of thing. And I I think we've and we've learned some bitter lessons over the last year as well yeah. as to how to do that. And we really have to get 
probably get a bit better. No, not a, not a bit better. A lot better at the um, self-isolation angle. Mm. So if somebody has got the virus or they've been very close contact, we've got to make sure that they have the incentive to self-isolate. And that perhaps means a bit of public money. Maybe so. I mean, interestingly as well, um, I wonder whether you would agree with, with what the government have said, which is that once they do lift this particular lockdown, they don't want to go back into another one. So that would mean that they'd have to be quite confident, would it not, that it's not coming back in any meaningful uh, way? Absolutely. If they, if they uh, release us from this lockdown and then have to go back, well, it's an admission of gross failure mm. and no government wants to be in that position. So I think there's a very strong political incentive for them to get it right in terms of once we come out of the lockdown, we've got the situation so much under control that we're not, to go, we're not going to go back to where we are today. No, exactly right. And one final question for you, Professor, because I was talking to somebody in the office here about this just the other day um, who had a bit of a cold. And I've had a bit of a cold as well. And we were both sort of, you know, commiserating with one another, saying, oh, how are we getting colds if we're not travelling on public transport? Uh, we're not really mixing with anybody. We're not really doing anything. How is that possible? Well, that's a very good virological question. I've been thinking about that myself, because mm. what we do know is that flu figures at the moment are the lowest ever recorded. I mean, there are hardly any flu cases about at all. And that's put down to all the social distancing and so on. So it should apply to the common cold. I think we need to reopen the Common Cold Research Unit on Salisbury Plain, hmm. which we closed many years ago right. because we thought the problem was so trivial, and find out why colds are buzzing around when, in fact, you know, we've got all the social distancing, all the things, and that's done, that's, that's really sorted out flu, which is very interesting. Yeah. Not surprising because that's what happened in New Zealand, Australia six months ago. Right. It is interesting, isn't it? Well, we'll maybe explore that one a bit more once we've got uh, more time to do so. Professor Hugh Pennington, thank you very much indeed. Emeritus Professor at Bacteriology at Aberdeen University, I should say. Uh, lots more for us to do. We're going to take some calls coming up. We need some common sense on the show and we bring, we get it from you. And what I've been asking you to do uh, is to let me know what it is that you're seeing, what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're able to do uh, and what's going on out there in the big wide world, of course, because you tell us and we tell everybody else. But we also talk about uh, the Labour Party this morning, who seem to have completely lost the plot. They've worked out that they are effectively unelectable. Nobody knows what they stand for. Nobody knows who they represent. And nobody knows what their strategy is uh, for winning anything, never mind an election. And I don't think at this point they could win a three-legged race, could they? Keir Starmer, Angela Rayner. What a collection of clowns. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now it's time to say a very good morning to Mr Neil Oliver. Neil, how are you doing? Good morning, Mike. Oh, you know, praying for a peaceful death. As <laughs> Do you know, funnily enough, I was reading, rereading your column from the Sunday Times uh, just yesterday afternoon and, and after Captain uh, Tom had died. And uh, remarkably, you were writing about people travelling on uh, on ships through the sort of Second World War and, 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 and going through that kind of peril, which is exactly what he did. He went on a ship uh, through to South Africa and then on to India uh, when he was on, only 20 years of age. And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about, about that generation of men uh, who went to war without question, which I don't think we would possibly do now. It's, I think, very difficult if not impossible to uh, imagine that those circumstances, you know, receiving a letter 
uh, telling you that no matter who you are and what it is that you thought you were going to be doing for the next six years, uh, no, in fact, you're going to be in uniform and you're going to uh, risk your life, possibly lose your life uh, in the service, the unquestioning service of the country. Uh, and that's that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, who has it, who's alive today that, that went through something like that? Not many. Um, and you, you said it all uh, about... Uh, Captain Tom, that what a life mm. to live to be a hundred. You know, to 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 be so it's almost perfect in a way. You know, to live to be a hundred years old, to come through all of it, to, to come through the, the war and the hardship, uh, and then you, you know to to do that to make that fundraising effort mm. to become to to continue to be an example in your last uh, in the last months of your life, and then to be to be uh, knighted by, mm. by the Queen and to be one of the few people who can actually consider the Queen to be a youngster. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And also, to be, and, and also, he did it all with such kind of um, casual, um, casualness, really. I mean, he, he never, he clearly didn't think of himself as a celebrity whenever he was interviewed, and I think we interviewed him once on this show. You know, he was just very humble. He was very ordinary. He didn't feel as if he was doing anything special. And I think that's very much a, uh, a trait of his generation. My mother is the same. You and I have spoken before about our, uh, our relatives who, you know, came through the Blitz and her, she was in, uh, you know, she was in Clyde Bank when it was bombed and she used to tell us stories of us, a 17-year-old, going down into the air raid shelter every night. I mean, just extraordinary stuff. I know. I listened. I saw some of the interviews. Obviously, obviously, he was he was interviewed many times. And I did, I honestly used to wince sometimes at the way in which he was addressed, you know, there, there, there tended to be from people who were half his age or a, a quarter of his age. There, there, was, there was almost that, the, the tone of voice mm. sometimes I found, you know, verged towards patronising yes. with, with someone like him. Yeah. Uh, where, in, where in truth, he, he should only have been handled with reverence right. and, and the most extreme respect. You know, you, the way you sometimes hear people of so much younger than the, than the, than the interviewee, mm. almost patting him on the head. Right. Which I found difficult to listen to at times because you know it was it was an extraordinary figure, uh, and yes, uh, made no fuss about it. You know, made no. It, it didn't appear as if he wanted any kind of thanks mm. for it. He was just doing it because it was the appropriate thing to do, mm. and he was of that generation that where something needed doing, they just they just accepted that they would do it if if, if there was no one else, uh, and that's um. It, it, it's, they are part of the they are part of the fabric of, of a material that has worn, I think, very thin in our society. There are so few of them left. Uh, it, it's a, it's amazing to think, really. I mean, I'm I'm of that I'm of the generation that the first World War veterans, many of them were still alive in my lifetime. Yes, and and all of them, it, it seemed it, it seemed understandable. I can that they were in their nineties and, and and then centenarians. And it is it's salutary to be reminded that the Second World War generation are nearly gone mm. as well. You know, I, it, that seems that seems extraordinary that that these people are the you know one of the ultimate mm. uh, endangered species. Uh, the, you know, they will soon all be gone, and and when they go, they take with them something that is irreplaceable. Yes, uh, and it's it, it it would be impossible, I think, to to replicate their lives because. I'm sure I don't know because I'm, you know, because I'm a, a stripling by comparison. I, I, I can only I can only guess, but I think because their, their lives were harder, they had less in the way of luxury. Uh, you know, food was different, uh, lifestyles were different, uh, automation was different, technology was so much less of an influence, and 
and hard graft was much more a part of people's lives. And that, that clearly molded and sculpted people mm. into a shape that's no longer possible because by comparison, we live lives of the most ridiculous luxury. And, and, and most of us don't face danger. Uh, you know, we're not put in harm's way in the way that someone like Captain Tom was. No. Uh, and so uh, the, the, when they go, we ought to pay attention because when they go, that, that sort of person will be gone forever. Yes. And I mean, uh, as I was saying yesterday when I was talking to Mark Dolan about him, in, in a way, there's a celebration to be had in addition. Uh, obviously, it's, it's sorrowful when somebody dies. But when you get to the age of 100, you know, you kind of want to celebrate their lives in the same way that my mother, who will be 97, uh, in March, and I'm hoping I'll get to see her before she gets to be 98, but I don't know if I'll get to her. But she's sort of asking my sister, you know, is anyone coming for my birthday? Which is kind of heartbreaking in a way, because, you know, that's all I want to do is go and see her. Um, and she is a remarkable woman, always has been. Um, but I also think about the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, my 16-year-old son um, is the same age at which my grandfather went to the First World War, lied about his age to go, uh, and ended up running the sort of the horses who were pulling the guns, you know, and you just think, I can't imagine that. I just cannot imagine my 16-year-old going to war. I know my, um, both of my grandfathers survived the war. My, my mum's dad was, was shot by friendly fire, actually, at Gallipoli. Right. He, he, was, he, was, he was accidentally very severely wounded by one of his own side, but survived. Mm. Lived to tell the tale. My, my dad's dad was in France. He was at uh, the Somme and then at Passchendaele and was wounded, um, we're not even sure, at least twice, possibly more, right. and came out of it and you know, did the traditional thing about you know, saying barely a word about it, yes. kept not a diary, you know, kept no notes, never spoke about it, and was essentially an enigma, or, or his experiences were, were an enigma until, until the end of his life. Mm. My mum's dad died before I was born. Um, and I, I wrote, as you say, at the weekend, um, about a, it was a, it's, it's a story that, that, that haunts me, uh, I heard it only by chance. I was I was filming off the, on a boat off the Isle of Wight, and the skipper told me about the loss of the SS Mendy, mm. which was a troop ship that was bringing uh, African African men from the part of what was called the South African uh, Native Labour Corps, and they were coming not to be given weapons to fight, but they were going to do just labouring, digging trenches, and all the rest of it. And in the English Channel, there was a collision with another vessel, and the Mendy sank very very quickly. Uh, with the loss, well, 650 men and crew were, were lost, and it was uh, Tosa, Basuto, uh, uh, Zulu, mm. uh, some of the great tribes of Africa. And, and there's this unbelievable account of, the, of their chaplain gathering the surviving men on the deck as it, as it sank in a fog-bound English channel at night, freezing in, in February 1917. And he said to them, uh, you're, com you're coming to do what you came to do. You're going to do what you came to do. We are dancing the death drill and we are sons of Africa. And I, Atosa, call you the Zulus and Basutus and the rest my brothers. And we will die like brothers. And they took our Asa guys from us and we left them in the kraals. But our voices are here with our bodies. And so we will sing. And so they did. He brought them to order and they went into the water. And as I say, 650 of those men were lost. It's still one of, if not the worst, uh, loss of life uh, in in British coastal waters, and I, and I think I think about that the fact that that they were able that they were brought to order in in that way, and that in their last moments he invited them to think of of, of sacrifice and and brotherhood, uh, and and the the inevitability of death, and that you know and they left behind you know this story that is told in South Africa to this day, uh, and when I when I think about them you know when February comes around it was February uh, 20, uh, 1917 when it happened. Uh, and it, 
it chills my blood and puts yeah. the hackles up on my neck. And those kinds of stories about people having a different perspective on life and death, I, I find makes me see the world and, and even the shape of reality in, in a different way. Yes, I think that's absolutely right, because what we have now... Um, is a very different reality, I think, and, and, and very different leadership, very different attitudes. And I guess inevitably they've changed over the years and over the the, the, the decades of, of our uh, kind of being more well off and, as you say, being uh, better protected from danger and all of that sort of thing. But you do worry that that has an, an, an also an effect on um, the kind of principles by which we live. You know, I was talking to my daughter yesterday in Dubai and she was saying she gets heartily sick of all of these people who are raving and ranting on about these influencers who have gone to Dubai to kind of, um, you know, do whatever it is that they do, sit in front of a swimming pool, posing. Good luck to them as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, you know, there's a part of society that's blaming them, you know, for killing people, blaming them for, you know, being reckless with, uh, uh, with their health. And, you know, we've become this kind of nanny state almost. Uh, and it hasn't happened overnight, I suppose. But, but that's what we are. Yeah, there's, there's definitely been a, an increase in the way in which we are as a, as a, as a society much more critical of, of each other yeah. in every conceivable way. There's, a, there's constant finger wagging and finger pointing and, and, and criticism goes on about the way other people live their lives. And that's, you know, that, that's why I, you, you know, you talk about uh, Sir Tom and, and we talk, we, you know, we're talking about lives that were shaped by hardship. Uh, and they're just... For good or ill, there's there's no doubting that it, it, it shaped a different kind of, of person. Because they had less, they, they, they somehow became more. Mm. And because they were properly in awe of death, they were they were properly in awe of life. And it's it's not by accident and not by coincidence. You know, these these a long life lived like his is is an example because his life can't be lived again and the, and the most we can do really is is look back and pay attention and take the example and, and to and to forget that is is fatally dangerous you know there's a there's a good russian saying i think it's russian which is if you look back at the past you'll lose an eye but yes. if you don't look back at the past you'll lose both eyes right and we don't we, we, at peril it's it's so important, first of all, to celebrate, absolutely to celebrate Sir Tom, because, you know, a hundred years, what a life lived, a life well lived and making a contribution until the end. But, you know, it's also important to take note of, of why he became the character that he was. Now, some of it's down to the man he was, mm. but a huge amount of it is he was shaped and sculpted by the by the experiences of those those 100 years. Uh, and, and to be reminded, I think, at all times about what a harder life, with a simpler life, a life where you had to do more for yourself and where you ask, you know, not what your country could do for you, but what you could do for your country. These are cliched things, but we, we see we see the effect. You know, his like, we will not see his like again. No, quite right. Now, I don't want to put you into any difficult situations here, and I know you don't need any help to be disliked by the nationalists in Scotland, but what is going on with the SNP, by the way? Because we've got uh, the, 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 the happy situation of looking forward to uh, Ian Blackford, uh, Prime Minister's questions today. We've got Nicola Sturgeon being very chippy about uh, the vaccination programme not going very well up there. Uh, and we've also got this Alex Salmond inquiry going on, uh, which her husband has refused to go and represent himself in front of i mean is there a chance neil do you think that the the, the the there's a bit of a wobble going on with the snp here's a sixty-four thousand dollar question mm. uh 
all the evidence so far has, has suggested that the, the, the party is and, the, and it's at its upper echelons are somehow Teflon coated, uh, and, and nothing nothing really has seemed to stick so far. Uh, I, I, clearly, the the rollout of of the vaccine ha, has slowed and is is stalling up here, and I don't know why. But when you look back at the at the track record of, of the Scottish government in recent years. You know everything from big civil engineering projects, bridge building, ship building, or, or looking after education or health. Uh, it, it has all it has all run onto the buffers to some extent because there's a lack of competence, straightforward competence. It, it is a single issue party that exists for one thing and for one thing only, which is to preach uh, separatism, uh, and its eye is never on the other ball never on the ball at all you know, in terms of running the country. So, so the fact that something as massive and as logistically challenging as the rollout of, of the vaccine for 5 million people, that, that it's not going very well, I don't find very surprising. That I've stopped listening to reports from the inquiry, the Salmond inquiry, so-called, because mm-hmm. uh, it just seems to be a, a, a catalogue of obfuscation and, and avoidance and denial and and people changing their evidence or, or, or refusing to give evidence or stories of documents that the inquiry wants to see not being surrendered. Uh, and it, it's just become one of those many stories now set in Scottish context. Mm. Uh, someone like myself and, and many people around me, we, we just shrug our shoulders because we've seen all of it before. It's just the, the continuation of a, of a, of a turgid song. Mm. Well, it really is. And I mean, unbelievably as well, um, Nicola Sturgeon is so wedded to the whole idea of of this kind of uh, European Union rejoining, staying in, you know, reapplying as a small independent nation that even she alone, even including the leaders of other European countries, couldn't bring herself to be critical of the nonsense that they got up to last Friday night when they tried to impose a border in Ireland, which they told us we couldn't do. You, I... What one wonders does one not at how that was allowed to happen? Right. Setting aside the rights or wrongs of it, uh, you know, having spent all those years saying that the, the number one holy grail of 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 Brexit was the avoidance of a hard border yeah. in Ireland, and, and if if Brexit was were to cause that to happen, then that would be unforgivable and unthinkable, and would have would have consequences, you know, unbearable. And then how on earth did they get themselves through a, a decision-making process where they uh, tried to apply the border by themselves? Yeah. You know, how, how inept are people when it comes to thinking, what will this look like if we do it? Mm. You know, you think the average family sat around their dinner table offered that set of circumstances would have said, oh, <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. No. That, that's the decision you don't want to take, right. so let's move on and consider something else. And you think, how are these extremely well-paid people, you know, unelected, but they obviously held in high regard by someone, how do they go through the decision-making process and do the very thing that they said, if it were to happen, would be an unforgivable right. disaster? Well, I mean, we used to do a thing when I was working in Fleet Street uh, as a journalist, and we used to have this thing called the private eye test. And we'd say to each other, well, how would this look if it got into private eye? whether it was with regard to how you were getting a story or what you were thinking of doing or who you were thinking of convincing that you weren't a journalist and, and trick, you know, all of that. And always, if the answer came back, that's not going to look very good in private eye. You didn't do it. I, think, I mean, to bring it back, to bring it back to Sir Tom and his, his calibre of, of human being, 
I, I mean, I ask the question because I don't know, but I ask the question, is the decision-making that we're seeing, say, in the European Commission or, or being made by, by heads of state and leaders of government, is it, is it because we're now, we're now led by generation, a generation, you know, our own and, and above, that hasn't been shaped and tested in the way that the likes of Sir Tom's generation was? And, you know, is there just, have the lives that they've led and the jobs that they've been able to do and the, and the, and the untested positions that they've been in haven't given them the the qualities. Uh, now, I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we want to go back to having wars in which we can, you know, in inverted commas, forge the heroes and leaders of the future. I don't mean that, but I just asked the question, is the, is the quality, the standard of leadership that we're seeing now here at home and around the world a consequence of people, you know, really not knowing the day they were born mm. and not having been tested and shaped and is this therefore what you get? Yes, that's a very good point. And I think in the end, we, we, we often say, don't we, that you get the government you deserve. And I think for a long time, politicians have become sort of immune to criticism by the public because they've kind of encouraged people to be disinterested. You know, it's only relatively recently because of Brexit, I would say, that people have got back into politics because I think the whole Blair era and the Cameron era was all about basically them doing stuff that we didn't really care about. Uh-huh. Yes, and I, and I think they are, the, the, the concept of the professional career politician, I think is just, or the consequences of that political class, I think we're seeing it play out mm. now. And, and again, I, I don't know because it's, it's impossible to be objective about these things, but because I was younger when I was looking up at, and I, and I did sometimes look up to uh, political figures when I was a child or when I was in my teens or my early 20s. And I, and I did feel that there were uh, impressive, charismatic, wise, uh, experienced figures whom it was worth listening to. Often, even though I didn't like what they were saying and I didn't necessarily agree with them, they still exuded a kind of gravitas yeah. and a kind of uh, statesman, stateswoman-like quality that was instantly recognisable as a as an observer. But as I say, was that just because I was much more naive then and I wasn't making the kind of value judgments of people that I make now? Again, I say I do not know. Mm. But I just know that I look across the political spectrum at home, broadly speaking, and across Europe and the wider world, and I just feel my shoulders sag in despair at the, at the, at the quality or the, or the lack thereof. Yeah. I don't see the charismatic figures that you think that's leadership. I just don't see it ever. No, you're absolutely right. Mr. Neil, great to talk to you as ever again. We're out of time, but uh, fascinating stuff. Neil Oliver, uh, TV presenter, archaeologist, telling us there about the paucity of talent I think you'd find because I don't think anyone in their right mind would look at somebody like Matt Hancock and think, now there is a brilliant individual would they i don't think i'm being unkind to him 
This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're going to talk now to Kate Harcastle, MBE, retail analyst, because the news this morning uh, that Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, uh, one of the richest men in the world, if not the richest man in the world, uh, is going to step down uh, as chief executive of the company, was quite a remarkable piece of news, really. And uh, I don't know what he's going to do. He's got a fortune of something like £200 billion. Pounds. I mean, what would you do with that kind of money? Uh, Kate, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, good morning, Mike. This well, is... he's going to be the executive chairman, isn't he? That's what he's going to do. Yes. So he's not really taking his foot off the gas completely. Yeah, but I mean, you'll know better than me what that actually means. I mean, what's the difference between being executive chairman and chief executive? Simply put, less of the day-to-day stuff, more of the strategic stuff. He yeah. wants to also carry on with his philanthropy. He's an absolute obsessive about space. So he wants to continue the idea. I think that he's going to get up into space one day. Um, but it's very interesting times for Amazon. They've had a huge quarter, the biggest quarter yet. Right. Um, and it's been a time where this futuristic vision of theirs has come into effect. You, you know, we can't just see Amazon as a retailer. One of the biggest offers they have out there is the web storage, the, the web server systems that they sell to brands like Starbucks. And, mm. you know, the infrastructure in that um, is so important to their profit and to their future business. And I think that's why the guy who's stepping into Jeff's role, uh, Jassy, Andy Jassy, who's been there since the early, uh, late 90s, the start of the company, the early days, he has been the founder. He's been the creator of a lot of that technical innovation that mm. we as consumers maybe don't see, but it's a hugely big part of that organisation and its profit. Yeah, I mean, this made me think as well about, you know, whatever it was 30 years ago when he started Amazon. And you think of these people as real visionaries and luminaries of, of the business world where they had this idea that somebody could deliver a package to your house and it could completely and utterly transform the way we do everything. I mean, it's it's remarkable, really. I mean, it's almost like these are the modern day kind of ancient Greek philosophers who have come up with new ways of making us live. I mean, let's go back to those early days. You know, he uh, left New York. He got a rented house in Seattle. He started uh, with a vision and he was pretty much packing books on a concrete floor in his garage. Right. And I think whilst he is, you know, the richest um, billionaire that we can probably all uh, have on the tip of our tongue. I think it's important to understand that he was a small business too. He started with those roots. There'll always be a question about Amazon. Are they a friend of small businesses or a foe? Are they a platform that enables smaller businesses to sell their wares and reach bigger customers? Or are they a brand that gets in the way because they're always there front of mind, always at the beginning of every search? But for me, it's interesting to remind ourselves that he took a calculated bet. And I think that's been one of the sort of significant parts of his success. In his sign-off letter to his Amazonians, his staff today, he, he finished with, let curiosity be your compass. And that's what he sees as being success. Be inquisitive enough, but don't bet the whole business with it. Mm, absolutely right. Because, of course, I mean, there are all sorts of arguments being made about whether they pay enough tax in all sorts of mm. different countries. And I would prefer it if they did pay more tax, obviously. But I'm not in favour of sort of protectionism. If, and if businesses like Amazon end up putting other businesses out of business, that's just because of the way that, they, that they're very good at what they do. There has been many scandals, as you know, Mike, with Amazon over the years, mm. the, the way they treat workers, um, the platform sometimes uh, on the retail side has been selling dubious goods. Um, the fact that the tax situation, not only the companies, but Jeff Bezos's own tax situation has been brought uh, into account many times. So I'm not saying that they're faultless. 
but it's certainly when you think about all the new businesses that are starting right now all the people listening to this who maybe have lost a role and they're thinking about starting something i think it's an, an example of our times of like you said innovation the right amount of bravery but the right amount of calculated risk and the way that they've expanded it's certainly been interesting. But again, you know, if you listen to Bezos's interviews, he says, I've lost billions in mm. the, the wrong businesses. I've, I've lost billions in the wrong investments. An example of that being Pets.com, which just didn't work out for him. So it's again, it's not a case of it's just been this one trajectory of success. It's been, uh, you know, hard yards. Oh, for sure. And when you look at people like, like Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk, we were talking about him yesterday because of that bizarre story about the monkey that he supposedly is implanted with a, um, uh, with a microchip to see where it can play computer games. I mean, these are real kind of modern day, um, I mean, I don't want to make too much of it, but they are modern day pioneers, aren't they? It's a bit like Steve Jobs, I think. Yeah. There'll always be the rumour mill. There'll always be the questions about the person behind it. We become fascinated with it. They become celebrities beyond entrepreneurs. Um, but how do you want to look at his success as the founder and then CEO of this organisation? He's built one of the biggest companies in the world from a garage in a rented house in Seattle. What what I see from that is there is that whole piece around what did he do? How did he do it? What have his successes been? What have the lessons learned? Yes, certainly a big company that size is going to have questions around it. And I hope they improve in terms of their authenticity and the way they treat their stakeholders. Um, that's certainly going to be the watch guard, I think, under uh, Jassy as he steps into this role. And presumably they're always moving around, aren't they? They're always looking for what's going to come next because presumably the business that they have now will probably not be the same in 10 years. 100% twitching, constantly twitching. Where's the innovation coming yeah. from? Is it Kindle? Is it Alexa? Is it AI? As I said, this whole piece that most of the consumers don't even associate with being part of Amazon's business, the platforming, they are going to have their fingers on the pulse with the amount of data they've got and the fact they've got capital to invest. Of course, they're going to be at the forefront of a lot of those edges. But, you know, even back when he started this in the late 90s, he had a vision. Other people could have had the same vision at the same time. I think there's always opportunities. We can stay, say today safely, I think, that entrepreneurism, uh, the maverick in this world, the disruptor, can still survive and thrive. And I think that just shows that actually there's opportunity for those of us out there that maybe have felt the last 12 months have been nothing but doom and gloom. Yes, exactly right. And, and just finally, Kate, I mean, on that, um, we're obviously, we think anyway, uh, moving closer towards some kind of lifting of the lockdown uh, as more and more people get vaccinated. 10 million so far, maybe as many as 20 million by the end of February. Um, you know, what's the, what's the sort of year going to look like for retail? It's been an obliteration of traditional bricks and mortars in terms of we know that those big brands have disappeared off the high street. Were the warning signs there before, Mike? Yes. Did brands act quickly enough? In some cases, no. Did they underinvest in their store network? Did they not see the opportunities we've just been talking about online? Absolutely. So I think this is going to be the evolution. What I hope is we get community places to be that don't just hang their hat on retail, but allow us to socialise when we're able to do so. We need that. We are human. And that we get better retail out of this, be that online because competition increases. And that means that we get better service, better lead times, the things we want from online. And that the traditional bricks and mortar stores get filled with a better value of our offer. So I think we'll probably get a better quality of retail on our high street than quantity. 
today. Great stuff, Kate. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed, Kate. Hardcastle MBE retail analyst there talking about Jeff Bezos and his uh, remarkable rise uh, to fame and fortune. A man uh, who, as she said, started off uh, in the back of his garage in Seattle, basically packing books and sending them to people, and now uh, worth over $200 billion. That's billion of his own money. And uh, he's now going to step down as chief executive of Amazon. But what a remarkable man. What a remarkable career. I'm very happy to praise somebody like that rather than to give them a hard time for not doing it the right way. Because at the end of the day, he's got an incredibly successful business that he started literally from nothing. Absolutely extraordinary. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.